when I published Ulysses by James Joyce in my little bookshop called Shakespeare and Company in Paris. Look, look, the dust is growing. My branches lost Lord James. Stately, plump, buck bargain. All perfume, yes, and his heart was going like mad. And yes, I said yes, I will, yes. Friends of Shakespeare and Company, read Ulysses by James Joyce. Read today by David Keenan. Preparatory to anything else, Mr Bloom brushed off the greater bulk of his shavings and handed Stephen the hat and ash plant and bucked him up generally in orthodox Samaritan fashion, which he very badly needed. His, Stephen's, mind was not exactly what you would call wandering, but a bit unsteady. And on his expressed desire for some beverages to drink, Mr Bloom, in view of the hour it was, there being no pumps of vartry water available for their ablutions, let alone drinking purposes, hit upon an expedient by suggesting, off the reel, the propriety of the cabman's shelter, as it was called. Hardly a stone's throw away near Butt Bridge, where they might hit upon some drinkables in the shape of a milk and soda or a mineral. But how to get there was the rub. For the nonce he was rather nonplussed, but as much as the duty plainly devolved upon him to take some measures on the subject, he pondered suitable ways and means during which Stephen repeatedly yawned. So far as he could see, he was rather pale in the face, so that it occurred to him as highly advisable to get a conveyance of some description, which would answer in their then condition both of them being E, D, Ed, particularly Stephen, always assuming that there was such a thing to be found. Accordingly, after a few such preliminaries, as, in spite of his having forgotten to take up his rather soap-suddy handkerchief, after it had done yeoman service in the shaving line, brushing, they both walked together along Beaver Street, or, more properly, Lane, as far as the farriers, and the distinctly fitted atmosphere of the livery stables at the corner of Montgomery Street, where they made tracks to the left from thence to Bouching into Amiens Street, round by the corner of Dan Bergen's. But, as he confidently anticipated, there was not a sign of a Jehu plying for hire anywhere to be seen except a four-wheeler, probably engaged by some fellows inside on the spree. Outside the North Star Hotel, and there was no symptom of his budging a quarter of an inch, when Mr Bloom, who was anything but the professional whistler, endeavoured to heal it by emitting a kind of a whistle, holding his arms arched over his head twice. This was a quandary, but, bringing common sense to bear on it, evidently there was nothing for it but put a good face in the matter and foot it, which they accordingly did. So. Bevelling around by mullets in the signal house, which they shortly reached, they proceeded perforce in the direction of Amiens Street Railway Terminus, Mr Bloom being handicapped by the circumstance that one of the back buttons of his trousers had, to vary the time-honoured adage, gone the way of all buttons, though, entering thoroughly into the spirit of the thing, he heroically made light 
were the mischance. So, as neither of them were particularly pressed for time, as it happened, and the temperature refreshing since it cleared up after the recent visitation of Jupiter Pluvius, they dandered along, passed by where the empty vehicle was waiting without a fare or a jarvey. As it so happened, a Dublin United Tramway Company sandstrewer happened to be turning the elder man recounted to his companion a propos of the incident, his own truly miraculous escape of some little while back. They passed the main entrance of the Great Northern Railway Station, the starting point for Belfast, where of course all traffic was suspended at that late hour, and passing the back door of the morgue, not very enticing locality, not to say gruesome to a degree, more especially at night, ultimately gamed the Dock Tavern and in due course turned into Store Street, famous for its C Division police station. Between this point and the high, at present unlit warehouses of Beresford Place, Stephen thought to think of Ibsen, associated with Bairds, the stonecutters, and his mind somehow in Talbot Place, first turning on the right, while the other, who was acting at his Fidus Akatis, inhaled with internal satisfaction the smell of James Rourke's city bakery, situated quite close to where they were, the very palatable odour indeed of our daily bread, of all commodities of the public, the primary and most indispensable. Bread, the staff of life, earn your bread, oh tell me where is fancy bread, it works the bakers, it is said. En route to his taciturn and, not to put too fine a point on it, not yet perfectly sober companion, Mr Bloom, who at all events was in complete possession of his faculties, never more so, in fact disgustingly sober, spoke a word of caution, re the dangers of night town, women of ill fame, swell mobsmen, which, barely permissible once in a while, though not as a habitual practice, was of the nature of a regular death trap for young fellows of his age particularly if they had acquired drinking habits under the influence of liquor, unless you knew a little jiu-jitsu, for every contingency, as even a fellow on the broad of his back could administer a nasty kick if you didn't look out. Highly providential was the appearance in the scene of Corny Kelea, when Stephen was blissfully unconscious that, but for that man in the gap turning up at the 11th hour, the thinnest might have been that he might have been a candidate for the accident ward, or, failing that, the bridewell and an appearance in the court next day, before Mr Tobias, or, he being the solicitor, rather old wall, he meant to say, or Maloney, which simply spelt ruin for a chap when it got bruited about. The reason he mentioned the fact was that a lot of these policemen, whom he cordially disliked, were admittedly unscrupulous in the service of the Crown, and, as Mr Bloom put it, recalling a case or two in the A Division in Clan Brassel Street, prepared to swear a hole through a ten-gallon pot. Never on the spot when wanted, but in quiet parts of the city, Pembroke Road, for example, the guardians of the law were well in evidence, the obvious reason being they were paid to protect the upper classes. 
Another thing he commented on was equipping soldiers with firearms or sidearms of any description, liable to go off at any time, which was tantamount to inciting them against civilians should be any chance they fall out over anything. You frittered away your time, he very sensibly maintained, and health and also character besides which the squander mania of the thing, fast women of the demimond ran away with a lot of pounds, shillings, D's into the bargain, and the greatest danger of all was who you got drunk with, though, touching the much vexed question of stimulants. He relished a glass of choice old wine and seasoned as both nourishing and blood making, and possessing apparent virtues, notably a good burgundy, which he was a staunch believer in, still never beyond a certain point where he invariably drew the line, as it simply led to trouble all round, to say nothing of your being at the tender mercenary of others, practically. Most of all, we commented adversely in the description of Stephen, by all his pub-hunting confreres but one, a most glaring piece of ratting on the part of his brother Medicos, under all the sirs. And that one was Judas, said Stephen, who up to then had said nothing whatsoever, of any kind. Discussing these and kindred topics, they made a beeline across the back of the custom house and passed under the loop line bridge, when a brazier coke burn in front of a sentry box or something like one, attracted their rather lagging footsteps. Stephen of his own accord stopped for no special reason to look at the heap of barren cobblestones and by the light emanating from the brazier, he could just make out the darker figure of a corporation watchman inside the gloom of the sentry box. They began to remember that this had happened or had been mentioned as having happened before but it cost him no small effort before he remembered that he recognised in this sentry Quondam friend of his father's, Gumley. To avoid a meeting, he drew nearer to the pillars of the railway bridge. Someone, someone saluted you, Mr. Bloom said. A figure of middle height on the prowl, evidently. Under the arch, he saluted again, calling, Night! Stephen, of course, started rather dizzily and stopped to return the compliment. Mr. Bloom, actuated by motives of inherent delicacy, inasmuch as he always believed in minding his own business, moved off, but nevertheless remained in the qui vive with just a shade of anxiety, though not funkyish in the least. Although unusual in the Dublin area, he knew that it was not by any means unknown for desperados who had next to nothing to live on to be about waylaying and generally terrorising peaceable pedestrians by placing a pistol at their head in some secluded spot outside the city proper. Famished loiterers of the Thames Embankment category, they might be hanging about there, or simply marauders ready to decamp with whatever boodle they could in one fell swoop at a moment's notice. Your money or your life, leaving you there to point a moral, gagged and garroted. Stephen, that is when the accosting figure came to close quarters, though he was not in any over-sober state himself, recognised Corley's breath, redolent of rotten corn juice. Lord John Corley, some called him. His genealogy came about in this wise. He was the eldest son of Inspector Corley of the G Division, lately deceased, who had married a certain Catherine Brophy, the daughter of a Luth farmer. His grandfather, Patrick Michael Corley, of New Ross, had married the widow of a publican there, whose maiden name had been Catherine, also Talbot. Rumour had it, though not proved, that she descended from the house the Lord's Talbot de Malahide, in whose mansion, really an unquestionably fine residence of its kind and well worth seeing, his mother or aunt or some relative, 
had enjoyed the distinction of being in service in the wash kitchen. This, therefore, was the reason why the still comparatively young, though dissolute man, who now addressed Stephen, was spoken of by some facetious proclivities as Lord John Corley. Taking Stephen on one side, he had the customary doleful ditty to tell. Not as much as a farthing to purchase at night's lodgings. His friends had all deserted him. Furthermore, he'd a row with Lenihan and called him to Stephen a mean bloody swab with a sprinkling of other uncalled for expressions. He was out of a job and implored of Stephen to tell him where on God's earth he could get something, anything at all to do. No, it was the daughter of the mother in the wash kitchen that was foster sister to the heir of the house or else they were connected through the mother in some way. Both occurrences happening at the same time. The whole thing wasn't a complete fabrication from start to finish. Anyhow, he was all in. I wouldn't ask you only, pursued he, on my solemn oath, and God knows I'm on the rocks. It'll be a job tomorrow or the next day, Stephen told them, and a boy's skill at Dalkey for a gentleman usher, Mr Garrett Deasy. Try it. You may mention my name. Ah, God, Corley replied. Sure, I couldn't teach in a school, man. I was never one of your bright ones, he added with a half laugh. Get stuck twice in the junior, the Christian brothers. I have no place to sleep myself, Stephen informed him. Corley, at the first go-off, was inclined to suspect it was something to do with Stephen being fired out of his digs for bringing in a bloody tart off the street. There was a Doss house in Marlborough Street, Mrs Maloney's, but it was only a tanner touch and full of undesirables. But McConaughey told him he got a decent enough to do from the brazen head over on Wing Tavern Street, which was distantly suggestive to the person addressed of Friar Bacon for a bob. He was starving too, though, he hadn't said a word about it. This sort of thing went on every night or very near. It's still Stephen's feelings get the better of him, and essentially he knew that Corley's brand new rigmarole, on a par with the others, was hardly deserving of much credence. However, hod, ignorance, malorum, miseris, succurere, disco, etc., as the Latin poet remarks, especially as luck would have it, he got paid his screw after every middle of the month on the 16th, which was the day of the month as a matter of fact, though a good bit of the wherewithal was demolished. But the cream of the joke was nothing would get out of Corley's head that he was living in affluence and hadn't a thing to do but hand out the needful. Whereas, he put his hand in a pocket anyhow, not with the idea of finding any food there, but thinking he might lend them anything up to a bob or so in lieu so they might endeavour at all events and get sufficient to eat. But the result was a negative, for, to his chagrin, he found his cash missing. A few broken biscuits were all the result of his investigation. He tried his hardest to recollect for the moment what he had lost, as well he might have, or left, because in that contingency it was not a pleasant outlook. Very much the reverse, in fact. He was altogether too fagged out to institute a thorough search, though he tried to recollect about biscuits, he dimly remembered. Who now exactly gave them? Or where was? Or did he buy? However, in another pocket, he came across what he surmised in the dark were pennies. Erroneously, however, as it turned out. Those are half-crowns, man, Corley corrected them. And so in point of fact, it turned out to be. Stephen lent him one of them. Thanks, Corley answered. You're a gentleman. I'll pay you back sometime. Who's that with you? I saw him a few times in the bleeding horse in Camden Street with Boyle and the bill sticker. You might put in a good word for us to get me taking on there. 
I'd carry a sandwich board on when the girl in the office told me they're full up for the next three weeks, man. God, you've the book ahead, man. You'd think it was for the Carol Rosa. I don't give a shite anyway, as long as I got a job, even as a crossing sweeper. Subsequently, being not quite so down in the mouth, after the two and six he got, he informed Stephen about a fellow by the name of Bags Comiskey that he said Stephen knew well at films. The ship chandler's bookkeeper there that used to be off and round in Nagels, back with O'Mara, and a little chap with a stutter the name of Teague. Anyhow, he was lagged the night before last and found ten ball but a drunken disorderly and refusing to go with the constable. Mr Bloom in the meanwhile kept dodging about in the vicinity of the cobblestones near the brazier of coke in front of the corporation watchman's sentry box who, evidently a glutton for work, it struck him, was having a quiet 40 winks for all intents and purposes on his own private account while Dublin slept. He threw an odd eye at the same time now and then at Stephen's anything but immaculately attired interlocutor as if he had seen that nobleman somewhere or other though where he was not in a position to truthfully state nor he had the remotest idea when. Being a level-headed individual who could give points to not and a few and point a shrewd observation, he also remarked on his very dilapidated hat and slouchy wearing apparel in general, testifying to a chronic impecuniosity. Perhaps he was one of his hangerson, but for the matter of that it was merely a question of one preying on his next-door neighbour all round in every deep, so to put it, a deeper depth, and for the matter of that, if the man in the street chanced to be in the dock himself, penal servitude, with or without the option of a fine, would be a very rara evis altogether. In any case, he had a consummate amount of cool assurance, intercepting people at that hour of the night or morning. Pretty thick that was, certainly. The pair parted company and Stephen rejoined Mr Bloom, who, with his practised eye, was not without perceiving he had succumbed to the blandiloquence of the other parasite. Alluding to the encounter, he said laughingly, Stephen, that is, he's down in his luck. He asked me to give you a, ask somebody named Boylan, a bill sticker, to give him a job as a sandwichman. Now this intelligence, in which he seemingly evinced little interest, Mr Bloom gazed abstractly for the space of a half a second or so in the direction of a bucket dredger rejoicing in the far-famed name of Eblana, moved alongside Custom House Key and quite possibly out of repair, whereupon he observed evasively. Everybody gets their own rational luck, they say. Now you mention it, his face was familiar to me. But leaving that for the moment, how much did you part with, he queried, if I'm not too inquisitive? Half a crown, Stephen responded. I dare say he needs it to sleep somewhere. Needs? Mr Bloom ejaculated professing not the least surprise at the intelligence. I can quite credit the assertion, and I guarantee he invariably does. Everyone according to his needs, and everyone according to his deeds. But talking about things in general, where, added he with a smile, will you sleep yourself? Walking to Sandy Cove is out of the question, and, even supposing you did, you won't get in after what occurred at Western Row Station. Simply fag out there for nothing. I don't mean to presume to dictate to you in the slightest degree, but why did you leave your father's house? To seek misfortune, was Stephen's answer. <laughs>